So we're doing six breakout groups. If you go to the Canvas page, you can see the questions that we're discussing. So they'll be in groups here for a minute. I'll just keep recording and then uh, we'll be discussing and then we'll discuss some other things in the chapter. Are we in week seven? Okay. Oh, sorry. Does everybody have their questions? Like, I'm emailing the online students. You got it? Dr. Rose? Yes. It's definitely not the same online as I had COVID last week and I got on my six day plane today. But just well then listening to listening to in class? Yes, it's much better. So like you're just good. I love your class. Oh thank you. Okay, a couple more minutes and we'll go through it. He didn't want to run again. Actually, he's going to be more 
Um, what are they doing with it? A judge? A ju I mean, this is just a guess. Maybe sixty forty. Yeah. Are they if they're going to be if they're if they're academic, then I'd lean more even higher liberal. Really? Really? Because I guess sometimes I always have the impression that every person goes through like, study constitutional law ends up being conservative. No, there's a lot of liberal constitutional law folks, especially in the professor area. So in like my field, like you, if you, one of the things you guys are lucky about is, is like in our department, there's a, there's a pretty good mix of, we're all pretty in the middle, but you have a nice mix. So I went to places and it's fine. It is, I mean, I don't care either way, but, um, so I was at a place, well, ISU, I had one, there were probably eight professors. There was one conservative. That's pretty typical. Um, for whatever reason, there tends to be a, more liberals, especially in political science. Mm. But um, at Utah State, there was maybe two conservatives. So we're pretty 50. We're, well, we're pretty 50. I'm not going to tell you who's what. The but. only one that's easy to peg is Addison. You think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. What do I think? <laughs> I mean, I think he's pretty liberal. But I had him during, during the Trump election, and he was he was raging. I just think it's really funny. I want to confuse someone because I insulted both Republicans and Democrats in a single sentence. That's what we want. So they're like, uh, what? I had this teacher in high school and I was like, yeah, and you sometimes you'll be wrong. Yeah, I get I get folks that think I'm one way or the other, and <laughs> then they'll graduate, and I'll tell them, you know. Can we guess what you are? I mean, now it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm, I'm really an independent right now. I'll tell you that, because since I'm an independent, I'll just tell you that. But um, I did kind of affiliate with a party. You were once a congressman. <laughs> 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 I was once. <laughs> yes. Okay, another minute. We'll finish up, and we'll go through this. We got it. We sound everybody's kind of quiet. Let me let me snag this. Experience Okay. So if you guys if we go through this, if you guys if, if you want to jot down something the group say that's helpful for preparing for the next exam, that, that's fine. Um, before we get started, let me just let me. I really love this quote at the beginning of the chapter, so let me read that and then we'll go through it and then we'll talk about some other stuff. The quote says, for most practical purposes, the president may act as if the Supreme Court does not exist. The fact is the court has done more over the years to expand than contract the authority of the presidency. In the nature of things judicial and political, the court can be expected to go on rationalizing most pretensions of most presidents. It is clear one of the least reliable restraints on presidential activity. So I think for... You know, people that don't aren't political scientists, don't study po political science, don't follow the court's relationship with the president closely. I think that's surprising, right? They think, oh yeah, that we have 
we have checks and balances and there's supposed to be this balance of power, it would just be natural that the court would be a good check on the president. It's really not. Well, that's what I was going to say. I just, that's what I always thought. Yeah. It was like, yeah, that's the whole point, but it doesn't seem to be, yeah. statistically, it doesn't seem to be very... Yeah, and we'll get in when I we'll do the chart here in a second as we go through that. It becomes a little more a little more clear. There's some there's some some reasons why that happens. Okay, Group One, you're going to tell us about um, kind of five basic characteristics between these two branches, or whatever you came up with. They're a little more free. This court's a little more free to do mm-hmm. what they would do. Other than um, the president appointing the one that's like a judiciary. Yes. I mean, yeah, once they're on there. doesn't really have much control over them either. And there was more, and I'm just drawing a blank. What are the thoughts? We talked about how each three branches have a specific role. Um, I don't know if this is like. A characteristic. I couldn't remember exactly what characteristics the state would look, but we talked about like how the executive enforces, well as the judicial interprets, um, and how those two kind of have to correlate together to make that connection. Because you can't really have a law and not enforce it, and vice versa. So. so that relationship between presidents and presidents enforcing um, rulings, or mm-hmm. or you know, from if it's about them, even following it, right? Yeah. So that's that's good. So yeah, uh, those are those are good thoughts. There's there's actually five specific. You guys kind of touched on a few, a couple of them um, at the beginning of the chapter. One talks about wayward justices. Um, we have a group, do we have a group talking about that. Yeah, so I won't go too into detail on that. Um, the first one is the politics of nominating people to the court. They obviously want someone friendly to their constitutional views. Supreme Court is usually a friend to the presidency and supports presidential power. They're most likely to thwart presidential initiatives when Congress agrees with them. So if Congress agrees with the court, it seems like they're more likely to stop the president for whatever reason, even though they're supposed to be insulated from the other branch. There's, there's obviously some pressure coming out of that. And then the pres- presidents take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution, but their own version of how they see the Constitution, right? Because <laughs> it says Democrats and, and Republicans see constitutional interpretation differently, right? There's, there's similarities, but they, they, there are some differences as well. Okay, group two. What are presidential, that's you guys, what are presidential presidents looking for in nominees? What are their qualifications? What are the politics? They said that there's three things, basically. There's three different ways they nominate them. And that's patronage, meritocracy, and ideology. So basically, ideology and patronage, are pre- they're pretty similar. But ideology is like, you know, you want somebody who shares a similar I- ideology as you. So, you know, Trump's going to nominate a Republican. Biden's going to try to nominate them. And patronage is you want to nominate someone who's going to be like loyal to you and kind of pay homage to you and help get done what you need to get done. In the meritocracy, somebody who like deserves. Okay, um, so they've got some experience. They're probably most of our probably, you know, we've had folks on the Supreme Court that don't have a judicial background, but most the vast majority do. So they've earned it that way. They come up. They're probably part of the federal court system. As far as qualifications go, there are no constitutionally listed qualifications. Yeah. you can elect a five-year-old or nominate a five-year-old and. The Senate can confirm them. Um, <laughs> That's just what we need. You know, that'd be great. I think that'd be uh, a real step. In, I like the, those. Uh, <laughs> have you guys seen those kid, the kid president videos? It could be kid Supreme Court justice. No, we don't want to do that. Um, other, other. So did you guys all get that? You had meritocracy. You had ideology and patronage. So rewarding people that kind of, you know, they don't. The judges don't have parties, but they played. Towards your your particular view of the Constitution, what are the things? What are the things you're going to be looking for? Um, 
besides those three main things? Can you get this person appointed? Experience. Yeah. Experience is part of it. Yeah. I mean, just like a background of like the person. Yeah. So yeah, like, the background itself that would probably go under maybe maybe experience or qualification. So like also who they are, <clears throat> what they represent. So that's kind of like I think Kavanaugh is a really good example of that. Yeah. Because they tried to paint Kavanaugh to be a certain type of person to make it so he would have been unfit to be on the Supreme Court. So if you remember, like they're like, yes, I, I love, I remember, I love. The, there's a meme about it now, like how, how, how have you drank like 20 beers in your life? And he's like, yes, and then then they go on. It's like, what about 300 beers in your life? He's like, yes, and so like, if he was a drunk or if he is a womanizer, yeah, you don't want him on the court. He's not fit to be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, it's not like the Republicans. So these things are tricky because like. I honestly, like in Tom, uh, Justice Thomas, who's been on the court for years, was accused of kind of um, some workplace sexual harassment. Still to this day, is by the same woman. She sticks. She sticks to her story. Um, those are interesting situations because you don't really know who to believe, mm -hmm. right? Um, I just as you know, be trying to be an ally for women. I tend to lean that way, so I like to believe women when they're saying things, but. Um, it's tr it's a little tricky when you're dealing just within a political realm, where you're just looking at it going, does this did this really happen or not happen? And and you're getting different narratives from both sides. Didn't Kavanaugh's pull out at the end that said it wasn't true? No, really? no, she stuck to her story the whole time. Yeah, she went in and testified, and all of it. So I think that's I think it's tough because you know, you probably have half of the folks looking at it going, yeah, she, there's probably is merit to this, and the other half saying no, there's no merit. So. Um, it is a little tricky, and obviously the Republicans in that situation knew, knew that probably knew there was some stuff that was going to come, and and said we're willing to, we want Kavanaugh so bad we're willing to try to. I don't think they got surprised. Um, we're willing to just go ahead and go and and do this. But so why did those representations only happen with some justices then, if they weren't surprised? Well, because I, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's a great question because. Some justices probably, and this would go for any politician. Some justices and politicians have stuff, did stuff in their past, or or put themselves in situations where maybe things might have been interpreted in a way that may, you know, um, could potentially hurt them. So, and others are pretty clean. Not to mention, if you are using it as a, like a purely offensive tactic, like where you're, you're being dishonest, you can only cry wolf so many times, and yeah, that credibility. Like if every time a justice of a certain party was nominated and they were like, oh, he's sexually harassed, it, you know, eventually it's just going to become dull. Yeah, I mean, you have to have, I mean, I guess there's some, you, you have, there has to be believable. I mean, I think, you know, you have a woman, so that's why I'm, in the Kavanaugh case, I tend to lean towards her story because she's not only saying that he did this, but she's willing to go put herself out there and go in front of the, front of the entire country and get just totally thrashed to say, hey, this actually happened. So that, that, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, now, is there a potential? I think there's always, it's interesting in some of these things where there's, I think there's the potential to like, you know, Kavanaugh, maybe it's, you know, from his perspective, he didn't feel like he had done anything wrong, but, the, but she, does that make sense? And maybe that's, maybe that's true of what happened with Thomas too, but um, it's, it's just really interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that. So that. To me, and so I think that goes score one for the other side because, you know, um, the timing. The timing very seems very political. Although the counter argument there would be, look. You know these, these things are hard to talk about, especially when you have kind of sat on it for years, and now you have this person who you don't think is a good person that's going to be in one of the most important positions in the United States and you feel a moral obligation to say something now, right? So it's, it is really tricky. And uh, I think we're all kind of in the same boat when we look at this stuff and go, hmm, do we, do we believe in this or not? Um, certainly it's much better when you can have somebody who's nominated who just doesn't have all the skeletons. And it, and it comes down to more what's their ideology. So let's do that really quick. Um, who had me for 110? Anybody had me for 110? What is oh, uh, American government. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, not very many people. So this is the little 
explanation I do in there about judicial interpretation. So those are a little constitution. So Republicans are trying to get what we call strict constructionists. This is Republicans. Another term you'll hear is originalists. So most of your, now judges don't have parties, right? So this is a conservative judicial ideology. So you interpret the Constitution, really going back to the words in the Constitution, to Madison's notes, that everybody's aware that Madison, the best notes we have on the Constitutional Convention came from James Madison, who was there and then would go home at night and in the hotel and stuff and transcribe everything. So thank you, James Madison. Um, Federalist papers, those are probably the best three things we have to understand the meaning. And other things that happened kind of at the time um, of the Constitution's founding. They're really relying on that, on that material to make their interpretations, okay? Now, Scalia, who's passed on now, I'm still using it <laughs> as my example of the strictest of the strict constructionists because it's really, it's fascinating. So he would only use what he called the plain meaning of the words in the Constitution. So it's literal the sen literally the, sen the words in the sentences in the Constitution and nothing else. No Madison's notes, no Federalist Papers. So he's kind of a, it's, he's interesting, he's kind of like a cross between, you know, an English professor and a biblical scholar or something. <laughs> Looking at the meaning of the Bible. Um, so, it, it, you know, where are, the, where are the words placed in the sentence and things like that? Um, you know, what comes before, what sentence comes before this sentence and what's the paragraph structure and, and what do these words actually mean? Um, that's what he relied on. So that's very, very strict, right? So that's, a, that's about as conservative as you can get on this ideology. The other one, and this is Dems, you can have your little, kind of think of it as a stretchy constitution. You'll sometimes hear the term living constitution describe this ideology. Um, although I think most liberals don't even like that term, but um, it's a very common term that you hear. So this is just, we just call this one non-constructionist. So they're both looking at the Constitution. Liberals are just sort of, they're more willing to stretch, to, to kind of update the Constitution, the principles in the Constitution to apply to modern day things, right? So think about all the technological changes and, and uh, all the things in terms of you know, personal rights and stuff that are different now than, than uh, you know, when it, you know, 1787 when the Constitution was, we figured out the Constitution and signed it, right? Does that make sense? So the game is Democratic presidents are trying to get non-constructionists and uh, Republican presidents are trying to get strict constructionists. Okay. Um, Justice Breyer, I'll use him as my liberal example. He, he was, he was known um, for saying, "Hey, look, there's some." He, he would say things like this: "There's some really good principles from other countries' constitutions, and, and we should incorporate those into our discussions of how we interpret law in the United States." That's really liberal, right? So I think Scalia's too conservative. Breyer was way too, you know, way too liberal. Uh, I think it's crazy that you're going to use other, it's the Constitution, it's clear to me that you're supposed to be interpreting based on our country, not other countries. If you, there are great things other countries are doing. Wonderful, let's pass a law, <laughs> right? Let's not interpret our Constitution based on some other Constitution from, another, from Finland, right? No, let's not do that. Um, but let's also not only look at the words in the Constitution and be so narrow. So the best just, justices are... You know, you lean one way or the other, but you're somewhere. It's the typical poli-sci answer, right? You're somewhere in there. 
Any questions about kind of how this works? Was that helpful? So that's the game, whether you're appointing a Supreme Court justice or you're trying to get someone else on the, on the federal court. Can you be fired from the Supreme Court? No, but you can be impeached. We've had a few, we've had a few federal justices be impeached and, and most of the time for bribery. We have never had a Supreme Court justice impeached. So like Breyer, for example, like isn't that unconstitutional to interpret based off another constitution? So like couldn't, hypothetically, could he have been impeached for that? I mean, I guess, no, I mean, no, he, he wouldn't. I mean, and that was just kind of his philosophy, one of his philosophies, and, and it didn't hold a lot. It, it didn't even hold a lot of sway with the other liberal justices. Yeah. I mean, something interesting in the Constitution, this was, I mean, it's a big talk in the Federalist Papers, is that the qualifications to stay on the court is good behavior. Yes. It's good behavior. It's not radical. You know, you, go, you can go wayward. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. So... You know, are you doing, you know, are you being influenced in an improper way? Did you take a bribe? Um, did you commit some kind of a crime? Um, fortunately, we're, we're putting really pretty good people on the court. It's not, it's not likely. I mean, we're much more likely to, I think, have a president do something than a Supreme Court justice. And, and they're in, they're judges. They're in the, <clears throat> we have, we, it's not like we don't have problems with some judges in, in this country, but... For the most part, people that are on the bench are really wonderful people and law-abiding citizens, and I think it sort of just comes with the field. Do you think, though, that the, the uh, founders should have made it more specific? Like, do you think just good behavior is a good enough, like, reference point? No, I mean, some of this stuff, I, I, and, and it's a good point, I think a little more specific would have been nice, and especially for, and we're, you know, talking about the presidency in particular, this idea of high crimes and misdemeanors. I think it would have been nicer to be a little more specific on that one too. So. But they could still pass something that would like allow that to be the case, right? We could pass an amendment. Yeah. Yeah, we could do an amendment that kind of deals with that. So, we're we have a hard time getting amendments passed, but we could go for it. Okay, um, group three. You guys have what's kind of the current state of the nomination process? Do you remember anything from Amy Coney, the Barrett confirmation at all, or any recent one? Yeah. So um, the president makes a list, rundles it down, picks someone. Yeah. Then the Senate has hearings, votes on who, if they get in or not. They get in, great. They don't, then it gets redone. Yep. Then Amy Coney Barrett, they kind of rush through it. Yeah. And hers wasn't, I mean, there's always, it's kind of, the, hers was kind of the typical, I think most, I think, the modern, we just went through a bunch, right? There's always going to be a little bit of pushback from the other side, but, you know, not a lot of controversy with her. The vast majority of these, they're, they're going through. Um, so there's not, there's not a high likelihood <laughs> that they're not going to get nominated. So you're going to be pretty successful, as long as you don't pick someone who has some obvious skeletons in the closet. She didn't get any um, Democrat votes. Yeah, so she was she sailed right through. Um, the any other thoughts kind of on the nomination process from anybody? Um, so other things, you know, to me, if I'm president, you know, I, I want to weigh kind of experience with also somebody that's young. Why why would I why would I want someone young? <laughs> that's my legacy, right? So assuming I pick the right person, now maybe it backfires. And they end up not being what I thought they were, and then you know I appointed them. But okay, justices don't have terms; they serve for a lot yeah. of time until they choose to retire. So, and, and for Trump, Trump made up a lot of appointments, right? Um, and and that was that was a that was a strong argument that I heard people make. Look, I'm voting. I I, I don't necessarily believe in a lot of things that Trump is trying to do, but I but I, I I'm a conservative, and I do think he's going to make a lot of appointments. Therefore, I'm therefore I'm voting for him. Just right? two, right? So he made how many guys? Three. Three. Three and a bunch of and everybody makes a bunch of federal. So three is a bunch, right? Um, and so they're right. So I thought it was a pretty strong argument for for saying, look, um, this is what this is why I want to cast my vote in that column. But um, and it looks like. Early, early days here, j judging these justices that Trump appointed. Um, I think he did get pretty conservative justices on the, on the court. So, 
Okay, group four. What's a wayward justice? Why do judges go wayward? Um, why do presidents need to feel like they need to stretch the Constitution? So a wayward justice is basically a justice that doesn't exactly go along with what the president wanted that justice to do. So I can't think of any examples, but I feel like Reagan had one that he didn't, wasn't necessarily completely pleased with. But So basically, they're like, all right, and they're going to be a very conservative justice, but they turn out to be actually pretty moderate. Yeah. They want them to be, or maybe they want them to be very moderate, and they turn out to be very liberal, very conservative. Um, and then, in general, presidents feel like they need to stretch the Constitution in some of their decisions because they feel like they need to do it to get things done. It makes it easier for them that they have more power necessarily. It's one reason. Yeah. So one of the one of a really good historical one, and the, and the example that the chapter used is Earl Warren, that Eisenhower appointed. Um, he, he was very vocal about, hey, the behavior of this justice is not what I wanted. <laughs> He's wayward. Um, so, in particularly the case that, that to look at is the Brown versus Board of Education case. I thought it was way too early to to desegregate the schools. So, um, about twenty five percent go wayward, right? So, one of our questions. I think is how often do they go wayward? Like they're not, um, put in place for their ideals and things by uh, you know, the Democratic president, and then if the next term they're still there and a Republican president goes in, do they start to turn wayward once they realize the president has ideals closer to their true ideals, and they start to go wayward at that point, or do they immediately as soon as they're nominated? That's a great question. I always wonder um, what like if that if that affects them. That would be a great, I don't, I don't know, that would be a great um, research question, right? Uh, I think in general, justices tend to get a little more liberal, whether they're conservative or liberal justices as they're on the court, just kind of discussing the law and, and all that, they tend to, to do that. Some, not that, some, we did this, we actually did this and looked at, we looked at judges going back 100 years in, in 110 last semester. Some, some tick up a little conservative, but the vast majority are gonna get more liberal. Um, but I don't know that there's a kind of a rule that, in terms of looking at when they go wayward. I think they tend to, I think, you know, if I had to guess, my hypothesis would be that they tend to, they tend to kind of, kind of look like what the president thought they were going to look like, and as time goes on, they get a little more independent, and then they, and then they go maybe wayward. But really, it's up to kind of like us and scholars and the presidents themselves looking at them going, hey, they're not doing exactly kind of what I wanted, so they're, therefore they're wayward or whatever, but um, I don't know that this is, for me, in terms of a judicial, looking at it judicially and constitutionally, I don't think that necessarily having wayward justice is a bad thing. I think it's actually good. We want independent judges that aren't just going to, they're going to they're gonna look at all these cases separately and they're not just going to, oh, we can already guess what they're going to do. I don't know if that's, that's great for the country, but okay. Um, five. I'm going to talk a little bit about Lincoln and the court. A couple of cases here. Um, yeah, so we had five, and uh, he had kind of a rocky relationship with the court. Um, so with uh, Ex parte Marion. Um, so during the Civil War, Lincoln um, suspended the uh, writ of habeas corpus, which is unconstitutional. So um, the court ruled that unconstitutional while he was still, um, so pretty much he ignored it and kept doing it. Yes. Um, and then so after his presidency, then ex parte Milligan um, happened, so that should the court placing clear limitations on emergency powers of the president, limiting his military authority. Good. So, so Merriman dealing with habeas corpus, um, as a reminder, that, that literally means present the body. You have to know why you're being charged. You can't just be rounded up for no reason. Um, when the, if the police pick you up and arrest you, they certainly can do that, but they have to tell you why they're arresting you. Um, and, then, um, and then you have Milligan that deals with military tribunals, right? So Lincoln, and he, and if you're gonna violate the Constitution as president, at least tell us why you're doing it, and, and Lincoln did that. He he was he knew he was 
violating the Constitution, and he said, why? We're in the middle of a civil war. I need to do this. I need to have, we need to have some military law for a while. We need to be able to round people up. I know it's against the Constitution, basically. <laughs> um, so, and, and Lincoln's not doing it for, you know, he really, I really do believe Lincoln's doing it for the country, not for personal reasons, which a lot of presidents who violate the Constitution can't say. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, Lincoln's a pretty good guy. Um, so, but he still is violating the Constitution. The court, a couple examples of the court saying you, you can't do this. Okay, what about, what about FDR for Group 6? Yeah, so FDR was interesting because his presidency was what is well known for expansion of federal power. Yeah. Um, one of the big things he wanted to do when he, after his second election was to pack the court and mm -hmm. raise the amount of justices to 15. Right. As high as 15, which would be, allow him to put in a, like almost a majority, all for him to be able oh, to yeah. Right. So, so he, they're passing New Deal legislation, FDR is very involved in this legislation, and the court is striking it down, and he's frustrated. And so he comes up, he hatches this plan, and lets it, you know, it becomes known that he wants to pack the court, and there's a lot of pressure there, and then there's a famous case, West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, it was a minimum wage law case coming out of Washington, and you had two conservative justices that switched their votes and voted with the liberals on that case. And there's this kind of fun phrase that comes out of this um, called the switch in time that saved nine. Have you guys ever heard that? So it was the switch in time that saved nine. So they were signaling, these, these Republican justices were signaling, hey, don't pack the court. We're willing to play ball a little bit more um, so that you don't do it. Um, obviously, he can't pack the court. It's unconstitutional. Who adds justices to the court? Congress does, right? So I don't think you, I don't think, unless you can get Congress to do it for you, I don't think it would have gone through. I think part of it was also if a judge turned 70 and didn't retire, he was just going to nominate somebody else. That was part of the plan, yes. So he was looking at, yeah, he was looking at, he was, for everybody over 70 and a half, he was going to add a justice, basically. And it just, you know, the numbers just worked out perfectly so that he would have a, you know, a good majority on the court. <laughs> but... Um, so very interesting. But aren't um, there a lot of arguments for for increasing the number of Supreme Court? There are. I mean, there's arguments for it, and we've just gone through this recently because the, because the Dems, I think the Dems were talking about it because that's, I think they sort of felt bad that the, that there's there's a, it's a six three court right now, um, or you know five four depending on what you think about Roberts, who's a little bit of a wild card these days. But um, I I just I think it's a horrible idea. Because, so you add, so you add five more or whatever, six more, or whatever, while your party's in power, and then what does the next party do? They're going to just this nuclear. So let's just keep it at nine. <laughs> um, and this plus I, the rules are the rules, and um, you'll have your chance, and it may be a little while to nominate some justices. That's fine. So, um, okay. Any thoughts on any of that we've discussed so far? Well, let's talk about these. Let's talk about these. This chart, and then if we have time to talk about some other stuff, we will. So here's the. So these are the court decisions on presidential power. So you have expanding, legitimizing, avoiding, two-sided, and restricting. So in the expanding case, you had the Curtis Wright case. Um, the, it just recognizes it's necessary to presidents to have more power in a particular area. Okay? Then you have legitimizing, and it's using the famous Korematsu Japanese internment. It might be the, one of the worst. It's probably top five for me, Supreme Court cases in US history, where they actually said, that's fine, <laughs> basically. We don't care that you intern Japanese, Japanese Americans. Fun historical fact, we had internment camps in Idaho. Did you guys know this? We have one really close to here, actually, just down the, down the road. Is it a historic site now? I don't think so. I think, I know, I think the one closer to, I think the one closer to Twin Falls 
might be though. I don't even know if the close to here is still around. Yeah, I mean we just we just know where it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean these are these are they're throwing up tents in the middle of nowhere, right? In a lot of these. I mean, I think in the, I think in like California they did use some military barracks and stuff. Yeah, California. Um, I know there's some in Wyoming where they did that too. Yeah. Nevada as well. Right. If you, especially if you're closer to like California. Well, yeah. But you, I mean, so can you imagine? Um, I mean, it was bad enough that that Middle Eastern folks in the United States were treated really poorly after 9/11, and there's a lot of controversy. Can you imagine? This is what it would have been like, just rounding those folks up and putting them in camps for no reason. I mean, other than you think they're suspicious. Yeah, that's how controversial this was. So they, they, just, they said, look, basically we're not going to rule against you, so it legitimizes the activity. And then you have avoiding. This is a, this is a Supreme Court case about whether or not the president can take us to war, right? They decided not to rule on that case, so they just avoided the issue. Then you have two-sided cases. The example there is U.S. versus Nixon. So that's you, you, you know, one thing for the president, one thing kind of against the president. This is the famous taping case. Um, JFK had installed the, the taping system in the, in basically in the desk by the desk of the White House, and then it it they would turn it on and off, and then it became a a voice-activated situation under under Nixon, so they had they had all the audio. And during the Watergate investigation, he was ordered to turn over the tapes. Um, yeah. Is this where there's like a, like five minutes or something? Yes. <laughs> this is the missing this is the missing minutes from uh, one of the tapes. Um, so they, they ruled against Nixon and said, hey, you got to turn over these tapes. But they also recognized the idea that the president has something called executive privilege, that some things can be secret. Um, so that, that, that happens a lot with the court where they're ruling. And then in the, in the reasoning or even in the rule of law, sometimes they'll, what they'll say will actually go for, the pres or go for presidential power. So that's an example of that. This case, this next... Um, this next case is a restricting case. So the steel seizure, um, Truman seized steel mills during the war for national security reasons, and the court said, um, you can't do that, so boom, stop. Okay, so you can see in looking at these cases, you basically have, you have a two-sided, which expands presidential power, but also restricts it. Avoiding, in essence, does that help the president when things are avoided? It depends, kind of, right? but it could help the president. Legitimizing cases help the president, and then expanding cases help the president. So you have five types of cases here, and in four of them, at least partially, you're sort of helping presidents, right? So you can see how in the rulings themselves, those have favored presidents, okay? Now, another big thing is, how do you get so, so great, you're ruling against the president, but how do you get them to follow that? The court doesn't have its own military. It's the same problem that, you know, this is in a comparative politics class, but it's the same problem the International Criminal Court has, right? Great, International Criminal Court. You can, you can try to do things, but how do you enforce, how do you even round people up to come to trial? You need, you need the help of other countries to do that, so... Isn't there a famous quote by Jackson when they ruled that he couldn't enforce the Indians off their reservation? Yes. He was like, the Supreme Court has made a decision. Now let them enforce it. Let them it. enforce it. Yeah. So, and the president is the chief enforcement officer for the country. So he's the one that's supposed to be enforcing things. If, he's not, if it's against him or something he doesn't like, he doesn't have to enforce it. Or he can drag his feet and take forever to do it. Um, can't Congress kind of enforce it with impeachment, though? Yeah, Congress could certainly put some kind of political well, if, pressure. If the president is not just following up the courts and said he needs to do something. Yeah, I mean, you could make that argument depending on what it was. I mean, I guess a president could be so rogue that the, that maybe if you had a if you had an opposite majority in Congress, they could say, "Look, he's he's essentially unfit for office because he won't do this." I mean, the take care clause in the Constitution. I mean, he'd be violating the Constitution directly and they can impeach him for that. Yeah, they could try to do that. Um, it would probably depend on the, on what it was. 
if it, if it, I think if it directly dealed with some really bad behavior that the president, and then he wasn't willing to change, maybe that could lead to an impeachment. So you had, you have Guantanamo Bay that's still, Guantanamo Bay was still has prisoners there. We've had presidents come in. Obama wanted to get rid of Guantanamo Bay and bring the prisoners to supermax prisons in the United States. Didn't happen. Trump came in. He didn't change anything. Biden's come in. Still folks there, right? There were, there were some lawsuits coming out of there, particularly from uh, people that were detained that had roots to the United States. And the court actually ruled, look, you have to give these folks trials. Did you guys know this? And if anything, it needs to be, this happened during Bush. If anything, it needs to be at least a military trial you need to give these folks. How many people at Guantanamo Bay have ever gotten a trial? A handful. Um, they, the executive branch just ignored it. It's like, we're not gonna, we, no, who's going to make us do this? Right. So, you know, the press can shout and scholars can shout and Congress can say, well, the court said you need to do this. Um, if there's no enforcement, it's difficult. So I think that's the real, it's a little bit of a problem. Um, and maybe that's something, you know, we talk about the Constitution, back to your point on high crimes and misdemeanors, maybe something more specific in the Constitution that says, hey, when it comes to these rulings, this, you need to follow these somehow. I don't know how you, how you word it, but... Um, it makes it tricky. Any other thoughts on on that? Okay. Um, yeah, you have Rasul versus Bush in 2004. Detainees in Guantanamo Bay have the right to challenge imprisonment. You have Hamdi, the Hamdi case. Um, you have Hamden versus Rumsfeld that talks about military commissions. You have Buma Dien versus Bush. Um, they have a right to have a hearing. Okay, any maybe for the last couple minutes here, um, any other thoughts on sort of this relationship going forward, challenges, things that you guys thought were interesting from the chapter? I mean, if you could, we're going to do a, well, maybe we do this. We're going to do, next chapter, we're going to do some reforms to the presidency as the kind of the last chapter. What, what sort of, and I mentioned one just a second ago, what sort of reforms, areas, if you guys could wave your magic wand, would you fix here? Yeah? Get rid of executive orders. You get rid of executive I, orders? I think that would be defined. <laughs> okay, what, what specifically about this relationship with, with, the, with the court? Oh, never mind. Oh, you're <laughs> saviors for Wednesday then? Yep. Yeah. Right. I would say there has to be some type of a constitutional qualification for a judge rather than yeah, maybe tighten that up. Yeah, like it, it should be more, maybe even like an age, at least an age restriction. An age, an age thing, and maybe you know, you guys know because I talked about this already. I like, I like an, an age limitation on the other end at some point. I think I can get eighty. Just, we just maybe need somebody. I mean, not to be rude, I'll be eighty one day. <laughs> but you're just pretty old. I just don't get like with Obamacare, like how the court ratified it. I know the decision was like based on the. It was a tax, but like I just don't get how. It's so you have so that is the that is the longest. Uh, so well, you know you know the history there. So you have multiple lawsuits on Obamacare, and then you have multiple multiple different lawsuits and multiple different rulings, both in favor of the original um, Obamacare that was passed, and then lots of rulings against Obamacare that gutted many of the things that Obamacare was trying to do. So you get a mix of. Things going on with it, Obamacare. Um, well, that's always bothered me is how certain cases they can just avoid if they don't want to touch it. Yeah, how? Why do you? Because, like, even like Massachusetts versus Lay, that's like Vietnam, right? And yeah. Like, avoiding this whole decision about Vietnam and if we should even be there. And so they just take an So, then in that case, it's uh, parents of a, of a soldier sued yeah. the president. Yeah, so it's like if. You don't. If they, they never took the case, but if they did, so maybe some kind of a like some kind some kind of a trigger that says you you, have you need to, to hear this certain case instead of just avoiding it and yeah. not playing politics and, and not hearing cases. Um, I get frustrated sometimes with the court. I want the court to take a particular case, and I feel like they need to take it and they don't. Right? I mean, on the flip side of it, I mean, they they get hundreds, thousands of cases that they can eight thousand plus. 
you know, maybe one thing that you could do is, you know, just to like a way for the public to vote on which cases they hear. Yeah. How, do they get paid good? Yeah, they get paid pretty well. You would increase pay? No, no, no. No, I mean, maybe increase pay if they take all the cases. <laughs> That's what they're paid to do. Sorry, did I say 8,000? I'm thinking laws. Not 8,000 cases. Um, hundreds. More like hundreds, 800 cases. That's why they're there for life. I'm thinking bills. Okay, other, one last, any last thoughts? Okay, so Wednesday, make sure you read that final chapter, and then they have a bunch of kind of proposals for reforms of the presidency. So kind of as you're reading, you know, jot down some ideas. We'll do a little activity where we come up with our own list of, of things we might do to reform the presidency. Um, maybe particularly think about how powerful the president is now. What could we do to maybe limit that a little bit? Okay, see you later. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. So you're who are you doing? It doesn't have to be just policies. Okay. So it could be just it could I mean that's a way to do it. You could look at specific laws that you're trying to institute or something or or, or but you could look at the kind of the character of what how he behaved in office. Okay. So that could be the linkage. Okay, gotcha. Right. Um I mean depending on what you want to do, I mean there's a reason why he there's a there's a reason why he kind of changed on civil rights. Okay. Right? So, like, that's one where you could look at and go, oh, why is he, he was sort of against civil rights yeah. in, in the campaign and said so, and then now he's split, and what's the story there? Okay. So that could be a potential avenue to look at. Okay. Uh, I mean, JFK is fascinating. There's, he's doing a lot of things uh, for, a lot of, it, it's really, psych I mean, all of them are psychological. Yeah. But in, uh, kind of him in particular stands out. Yeah. Um, some of the behaviors because of he was he was ill and he actually thought he was going to die. He was super yeah. young. Mm -hmm. um, so how did that? I think in his personal life, that definitely impacted his personal life. It was sort of the eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. Not sort of. He was. That was that. That was the thing. I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, for sure. Because I don't think I'm going to even be around. Yeah. <laughs> and he and it's fascinating because we'll talk about it when we get to him because you I, I think JFK actually is a pretty good person in terms of his his ethics as it comes to politics, but not in his personal life. So what's going on there? That might be something to look at. All right, too. I'll look forward to that. Thank okay. you. The extra credit for our next class, the intro.